Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called When a Picture is Worth a Thousand Words, Luther Durier in the Living Word of God. It's a guest essay by Barbara Pitkin, Senior Lecturer in Religious Studies at Stanford University. She's a Calvin scholar who worships at Grace Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Her essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 30th, 2011, Reformation Sunday. From this week's epistle in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as what it really is, God's word, which is also at work in you believers. 485 years ago this month, the Renaissance painter Albert Durer presented the town council in Nuremberg, Germany, with an extraordinary gift a painting consisting of twin panels portraying four New Testament authors, accompanied by didactic verses drawn from the writings attributed to each. These biblical passages were taken from the first edition of Luther's German New Testament, that runaway bestseller published in 1522. The customary title of the painting, Four Apostles, is somewhat misleading. Since only three of the four men depicted, Saints John, Peter, and Paul, were, strictly speaking, apostles. The fourth, Saint Mark, though an evangelist, was traditionally thought to be a disciple of the Apostle Peter. Currently housed in the Alte Pinakothek Museum in Munich, Durier's masterpiece represents one of his greatest achievements. The significance of Durier's donation to the Nuremberg magistrates who had formally adopted the Reformation only a year and a half earlier, as well as the interpretation of the iconography and inscriptions, have been the subject of much debate. What were Durier's intentions in presenting such an expensive and monumental work to the town councillors rather than to the church? Was this a genuine gift or a sale? seeing as Durier received payment of a hundred golden from the magistrates, who insisted that he be compensated. Questions surrounding the meaning of the subject matter have been even more vexed. While the visual content of the painting seems a clear indication of evangelical sympathies, what is the reason for the inscriptions, which warn against false teachers and prophets, rampant immorality and religious hypocrites, after reviewing the rich body of literature that is sought to answer these questions, historian Carl C. Christensen argues that, despite a current lack of consensus on the meaning of the inscriptions, Durier's painting nonetheless represents the personal witness of the artist for his biblically-based Christianity. Christian's conclusion is that it is the primacy of the word, above all, that is the message of Durier's four apostles. It's clearly borne out in the visual components in their arrangement. Three of the figures hold scripture. Paul holds a closed entire Bible, 
while Mark holds a scroll of his gospel, and John reads a book containing his gospel, open to the first verse, in which Durier has included in Luther's German rendering, Am Anfing war das Wort, In the beginning was the word. But what, you may ask, is the word of God, when there are so many words of God? The whole Bible? The Old and New Testament? The Gospel accounts of Jesus? The second person of the Trinity who was in the beginning? It was this question that Martin Luther posed at the beginning of his 1520 treatise, Freedom of a Christian. His answer, spelled out in that treatise and other writings, such as the biblical prefaces he wrote for his German Bible, constitutes one of his most important, but frankly, most misunderstood legacies. Durier's painting captures visually what is truly distinctive about, yet sometimes overlooked, in Luther's evangelical understanding of the word, in the nature of biblical authority. Fundamental to Luther's understanding of the Word of God is a division between promises and commandments, or law and gospel. While both are Word of God, the gospel is the Word in a special sense, and for two reasons. First, it creates the faith that justifies. In the preface he wrote for his 1522 German New Testament, Luther defines the gospel as any preaching about the benefits of Christ found or promised anywhere in the Bible. However, he notes, this message is particularly clear in John's gospel, the epistles of Paul, especially Romans, and the first epistle of Peter. These books, he wrote, are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know even if you were never to see or hear any other book or doctrine. Second, because of what it does, the gospel becomes for Luther an interpretive principle, the key for interpreting and evaluating the entire scripture. In his preface to the books of James and Jude in his German New Testament, Luther writes, All genuine sacred books agree in this, that all of them preach and inculcate Christ. And that is the true test by which to judge all books, when we see whether or not they inculcate Christ. For all the scriptures show us Christ. Scripture, as God's word, is then a kind of performative speech, like the baptismal formula. Most effectively, scriptural preaching is performative speech that puts forth Christ and creates faith. For Luther, the Bible is word of God not just because of what it says, but also because of what it does. It sets forth Christ in such a way as to awaken faith in him. And those parts of scripture that do this preeminently are especially esteemed and function as the internal criterion for interpreting the rest of Scripture. There is no iconographic tradition before Albrecht Durer for portraying these four biblical writers together. But in light of Luther's views on the primacy of the gospel and where it is especially to be found, 
The logic of the figures as well as their arrangement is easily grasped. John on the left and Paul on the right dominate the composition. Larger and lighter than Peter and Mark in the background. Their robes partially obscure the other figures, even as the books they hold mediate access to them. Peter was not the only presumed author of the epistle prized by Luther, along with the writings of Paul and John. He was also the apostle to whom the keys of the church had been given, and the predecessor of the Pope. He is here subordinated to John, and reads in John's Gospel for guidance. Of the other three evangelists, Mark is the one whose gospel begins with direct mention of the gospel message. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet he, too, author of a, many of the, author of a great many of the deeds of Christ, needs to, be, needs to look to Paul, whose clear articulation of the gospel provides the key, not only to Mark, but to testing all the rest of Scripture. Luther was not the first to assert the authority of Scripture, not by a long shot, but he drew an unprecedented conclusion from the traditional esteem for the Bible as Word of God that marked a new moment in Christian understandings of the Bible as God's living Word. With the Christian tradition before him and much of it since, Luther affirmed that Scripture contained the Word of God. But for Luther and others of his theological descendants, the written Scriptures are important not just for what they contain, but in addition, or even rather, for what they convey. The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, to be grasped in faith. God's Word, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, which is also at work in you believers. Through his choice of biblical figures, their arrangement, and especially the dialectical positioning of the entire Bible and the opening verse of John's Gospel, Albrecht Durer renders Luther's discerning insight about God's living word and where it is to be found into a visual idiom. Barbara Pitkin of Stanford University Luther, Durier, and the Living Word of God. For books this week, I review Russell King, People on the Move, An Atlas of Migration, Berkeley, University of California Press, 2010, 128 pages. What do the following social factors all have in common? military security, climate change, the slave trade, religious persecution, economic need, ethnic cleansing, environmental catastrophes, brain drain, and political oppression. They are all causes and or consequences of human migration. The five authors of this volume are colleagues at the University of Sussex Center for Migration Research in England. The subject is admittedly complex, and hard data is often difficult, if not impossible, to obtain. But the results, as this book show, are fascinating. 
This is not a book you sit down and read from start to finish. You could linger on a page or two for an hour. The book is a combination of short narrative overviews that introduce hundreds of maps of highly specialized topics, all related to human migration. Human migration can be permanent or temporal, legal or illegal, international or internal, voluntary or involuntary, rural or urban, and by refugees or by skilled workers. The book contains all sorts of surprises that break stereotypes. In 2010, for example, only 3% of the world's population were international migrants, although this small percentage still represents a large number. The largest single migration in the world right now is the 100 million Chinese who are moving internally from the country to the cities. The largest international migration of free people was the 50 million people who moved from Europe to the United States during the 19th and early 20th century. Moving to the Middle East, in Qatar, 87% of the population is composed of migrants. In Jamaica, 85% of all skilled Jamaicans, those with a tertiary education, live outside of their country. And overseas development assistance totals about $103 billion. But this pales in comparison to remittances of $250 billion by migrants back to their home country and families. The Judeo-Christian story is based upon Abraham, a wanderer who, we read, went out not knowing where he was going. The Hebrews were forcibly enslaved and deported by Egypt to Syria and Babylon. They repatriated. Today there is a huge Jewish diaspora. This book by Russell King, People on the Move, puts into very interesting light the biblical injunction from Leviticus 19, verse 34. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Russell King, People on the Move, an Atlas of Migration. For film this week, I review the movie called Contagion from 2011. What would happen if a viral pandemic that made HIV look like child's play struck the world? That's the subject matter of this international thriller from director Steven Soderbergh. The plot lines are fairly predictable. Scientific sleuthing by medical experts like Aaron Mears, played by Kate Winslet, public paranoia, mass panic, conspiracy theories, charges of profiteering, political hand-wringing, global interconnections, an angry blogger with unclear motives and a huge internet following who claims to have a homopathic cure, and a family story that centers around Mitch, played by Matt Damon, whose wife, Beth, played by Gwyneth Paltrow, was one of the first victims. 
After I left this movie, I went to the men's room and washed my hands of whatever contagions I might have had. This is a scary movie. Contagion by Steven Soderbergh with significant star power Kate Winslet, Matt Damon, and Gwyneth Paltrow. And finally, for Reformation Sunday, which is followed by All Saints Day, we've published the hymn by William Howe, For All the Saints, from 1864. For all the saints who from their labor rest, who thee by faith before the world confess, thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Alleluia. Alleluia. O blessed communion, fellowship divine, we feebly struggle, they in glory shine, yet all are one in thee, for all are thine. Alleluia, Alleluia. And when the fight is fierce, the warfare long, Steals on the ear the distant triumph song, and hearts are brave akin, and arms are strong. Alleluia, Alleluia. From earth's wide bounds, from ocean's farthest coast, through gates of pearl streams in the countless host, singing to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Alleluia. William Howe, for all the saints. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 30th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.